We just thank you for this opportunity to come together. We ask you to guide and lead as we look at the word and, and show, show us what you'd have us to see from this. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 5. And up to this point, we've had the wall being built. We've had Sambalat and Tobiah trying to cause problems. And now we're going to see that there's some internal problems that Nehemiah has to deal with. Verse 1. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews, for they were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them, and we, that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. And yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring in, in, unto bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are bought into bondage already. Neither is there in our power to redeem them, for other men have bought our lands and vineyards. So we're going to look here at the problem that they're complaining about. Uh, these are the local people that are living in Jerusalem, the Jews, and they're complaining that... They have lots of, you know, that they're, that they're many and that they are spending, number one, all the time working on the wall and they're trying, trying to, to harvest some crops and try to eat. And verse 3 shows the, the big problem. It says, we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth or the famine or the, the lack, of, lack of food. So the, there's a famine or a shortage in the, in the land because everybody's building the wall. They're not building... <laughs> They're not farming like they're supposed to. Sambalad and Tobiah and all the people around them are against them. So they're going to, if they sell at all, they're going to sell at the very highest price they can. And many of them won't even sell. So, and then they're saying, and besides just trying to feed ourselves, we borrowed money to pay the king's taxes. <laughs> and uh, and, and the, what they're borrowing on is their land and their vineyards, their, their property. And it says, But now our flesh is as the flesh of the brethren, our children are as children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of the daughters are bought into bondage already. Neither it is in our power to redeem them. So they're saying, Hey, we're we're so we're getting to the point where we're selling our children into servitude. And we can't redeem them. Okay, and we remember from our studies in Exodus and Leviticus that they're supposed to be the the year of Jubilee every 50 years where everything is returned back to the individuals that has owned them and here they are looking and saying hey we can't even redeem our family we're selling them and we're, we're never going to be able to redeem them so we have a problem here people are getting basically upset they're the people are poor they're They've been working hard on building this city and not getting a pay for it because it's there for their own protection. And they're not getting their farming done because of all of this. So there's a big deal going on here. Verse 6, And I, this is talking about Nehemiah, was very angry when I heard their cries and these words. Then I consulted with myself and rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brothers. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, we, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will you even sell your brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. So we want to look at this. Jeremiah, uh, Nehemiah gets angry. And the question is, why was he angry? He was angry because the Jews were not supposed to loan money at usury to their own brethren. That would be Exodus 22, 25, Leviticus 25, 36, and 37, and Deuteronomy 23, 19, and 20. So they had already been told by God, you can charge foreigners and aliens interest, but you cannot charge interest to your own people. And so they're in violation to God's way of doing things. And here is a problem developing inside Jerusalem where Nehemiah is governing and saying, we have a problem here. These people aren't obeying God. And so there's a huge issue here. And he gathers an assembly, a great assembly. 
And you, you note that he talked to the nobles and the rulers. These are the people that had the money that were causing the usury. <laughs> okay. So they were saying, okay, fine, you can, you know, we'll, we'll give you corn, but you've got to give us, you, you know, you know mortgage, mortgage on your property. And, uh, um, and you got first born in some of these cases. Daughters or whatever. So, and so Jer uh, Nehemiah is calling this assembly to, together to, to show a rebuke. And, you know, he's rebuking the nobles and the, and the leaders because they should know better, number one. They should know the word of God. They should know that they're not supposed to charge usury to their own people. They shouldn't get rich at the expense of the, of the people who are having a hard time. And in this case, really shouldn't get rich because these people have been building the walls to protect the city instead of spending all their time building a living for themselves. And so we have this tension coming in in the middle of their, of their city because of disobedience to God. And, and uh, Nehemiah is going to reach out and just be ex upset about all this. And he calls the assembly, all the people. And he said, And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathens. So he says, Hey, we've, we've done everything we can to buy back those who were sold to the aliens. And that was to never happen. Again, going back to the, the, the Pentateuch, they were never to sell themselves to foreigners because there was no redemption that way. And he says, you know, we bought them back. You know, we, we did what we could to buy them back. And it says, and you are selling your brethren and shall they be sold unto us? And they held their peace and said nothing in answer. The, the nobles, he's attacking them. You're buying these servants. You're charging interest on your loans and they have no answer. And this is pretty wise of them not to answer back because if they had answered back, he would have quoted all the scriptures back to them and told them that you know, they're not following God. And they had no answer to give him. And this is why God tells us we are to be ready always to give an answer, a reason for what we have done. And this keeps us thinking about what we're doing. If, we, if we're going to be able to know that we have to give an answer and an, an account for what we believe and say and do, then we will walk more circumspectly. We will think about what we're saying instead of just running off at the mouth until until we can't do anything and, and people are, you know, because people listen to us and they, and they want to know what it is that we're, we're saying, covering, doing, and they want to know that there's a reason. And we as Christians should stand out from the crowd. We should be able to say, we have a different lifestyle because we are citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of this world. Our speech should be Christian speech. Our actions should show forth God's love uh, we should not be flying off the handle with people and, and attacking people because that is just not who we are as Christians. And it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. You know, unfortunately, we will violate all those at, so, at some point in time, but our general lifestyle should be that of a Christian. And we can't explain it off by saying, oh, that's just who I am, or God knows that I would do that. You know, yes, he did know we were going to do it, but that doesn't mean he wanted us to do it. And he knows who we are in the flesh, even though he wants us to be in the spirit. So here we are looking at what God is asking us to do. And they, in, in verse 9, he says, And I said, it is not good what you do. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen of our enemies? And this is, again, just what we were talking about. You're living just like our enemies. You're not fearing God, and you're being just like everybody else in this world. Don't you fear God? And ultimately, that's what we should be looking at. Do I fear God? Am I going to walk in a way that lifts him up and builds him up? Or am I walking in a way that, that brings shame on his name? And many, many Christians, unfortunately, live a life that bring shame to God and they will justify it they'll justify it well we're under grace or God will forgive me because this is just who I am I you know and there's no desire to let God crucify the flesh and move forward and here Nehemiah is saying hey get right basically he's, he's being blunt with these people get your act together so and in verse 10, and likewise, 
and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn, I pray unto you, let us leave off this usury. Restore unto you, I pray you, to them every, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, also a hundredth part of the money and the corn and the wine and the oil that ye exact from them. So he's saying, quit the usury, quit taking the interest from your, our people. And again, I'm sure that he, this isn't the whole thing. I'm sure he quoted the verses we gave you before that said you can't charge usury to our own people. And then he's, you know, then he's, you know, then he gets really bold and says, restore. You've been taking advantage. Leaders, you have been taking advantage of these people. Give them back their stuff today. You know, not only their stuff, but give them back a hundredth part of the money. You know, uh, because he's saying you've taken advantage of them. You, you know, here they have been working, building, building the walls, building Jerusalem, and in, in spite of wanting to have their own lands and their own and their own food, and you're here keeping them from going forward. And uh, so we we see them. He calling them to return. And this is one of the things we need to do as Christians. If we find ourselves that somehow we've manipulated or cheated somebody, we need to restore. We need to make make good what we've done. Amends, amends make amends, restore, and and uh, take it. Help these people that have been hurt. And because the the wealthy will always take advantage of the poor, it's just the way it's been forever. And you know, we as Christians need to make sure we don't try to do that same thing because we have our position that we are, we're to keep. Verse twelve, and they said, the the nobles and the leaders, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So we will do as you say. Then I called the priest and took an oath of them that they should do according to their promise. So the. The leaders have been chastised and they're recognizing that they were guilty. And I love what they said. We will restore and we will require nothing of them. So in other words, they're saying we're going to give back and we're not going to expect the principal back even. Uh, which they were allowed to have the principal coming back to them. They just weren't supposed to you know, charge the interest. And, so, and then Nehemiah calls for a priest so that they will swear an oath before God. <laughs> that they're going to obey. Because he knows that they're human. He knows that humans tend to say one thing and do another. Uh, he knows that when, when, when caught, human nature will say, okay, I'm sorry, and I'll repent, and then not do it. And so he is going to have them swear an oath to God to do, what, to do this. And it says in verse 13, And I shook my lap and said, this, So God, shake out every man of this house and from his labor and perform not, that that performs not his promise, even thus shall he be shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation in the, said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did according to the promise. So he did a very visual, visual thing. He had his cloak, and he shook off whatever was in it, you know, what dust and every, whatever was on his, on his cloak. And he, he said that this is, what, this is going to be what happens to you if you don't fulfill the promise. And I can imagine what that might mean, you know, their, their oath that they've made, their, their promise. And, and it says, you will be shaken out and emptied. Okay? You think you have something, you disobey God on this, you won't have anything. And God tends to do that with us if we, you know, we've talked about this, you know, if we, if we withhold tithes and offerings from God, then he will, and, and I firmly believe this, if we withhold our tithe from God, God will take his tithe from us. Sure. Now, we'll wake up and there'll be four flat tires on our car or something. You know, there'll be uh, an engine blowout. Uh, the, the water tank will go out. And, uh, you know, God will get his tithe from us, whether we give it freely and get rewarded or he takes it and we have a hard time. And when he takes, when we give it to him freely, he blesses. Right. And he stretches the money. Oh, he me that yeah. If he forces it from us, right. he says, oh, fine, I'll just take mine and a little bit more, and you, and you struggle from yeah, it all. You don't know how many times the Lord will say, give somebody, and you know, the second the word says it, it is no longer mine. Because <laughs> it wasn't mine to begin with. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. And thank you, Lord, for that. So God says, if you don't do what you've just promised, you're going to be emptied. 
And the congregation said, Amen. And we've talked about Amen. It means so be it or let it be. And they praised the Lord. And then this little statement at the very end, and the people did according to their promise. They fulfilled it. Nehemiah is being a very good leader. Okay, he's gotten the wall built in spite of all the, the battles from, you know, uh, the attacks from Samballad and Tobiah. Uh, he's gotten, he's looking at the people and he's correcting them. Ezra did the same thing. They, mm-hmm. Both these guys are saying, people, you're not following God's rules. We're going to get it. And uh, They were prophetic in what they said also, weren't they? Oh, yeah. Well, the people repented when they went after them. And this is where Christians are so many times where we go, okay, God, you know, I'm under grace. I don't need to follow these rules. Well, God says, okay, you're under grace, but there's, there's consequences when, you don't, when you're not obedient. When we are disobedient, God says, okay, you're under grace, you're forgiven, you're still going to heaven, but there's going to be consequences for them. And the greater, you know, sin is sin, but there are sins that, are, that have more impact than other sins. And the bigger the sin, the greater the consequences that will come your way. God holds leaders responsible, and that's why submission is a good thing, because Amen. if you're submitted to a leader, Amen. the leader is the umbrella, and you're, and you're protected. Now, if they're telling you to do something obviously wrong, then that's a whole other story. But if they're doing something, and you may, not, may or may not agree with what they're doing, but it's not wrong, then you should be submitted and do what it is. You, you share with that leader, well, I don't think this is a really good idea, and if they still want to go with it, then... And, then that's, and that's whether it's in the church or the home or work or government or any of these places where leadership is ordained by God, we are to submit to that leadership unless it goes contrary to God. And by being submitted, we are put under an umbrella of protection that says, okay, your leader is going to catch the brunt for doing, for doing this dumb thing, not you. And... That's why it's important, you know, submission is a very precious thing to be, be submitted to somebody. If, you, if you're in a place where you cannot be submitted, then you need to find a different place to. Uh, verse 14. Moreover, from that time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year unto the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, that is, 12 years. I and my brethren have not eaten of the bread of the governor, but the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did I not because of the fear of God. Yea, also I continued in all the work of this wall. Neither brought, bought we any land and all my servants were gathered hither unto the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers besides those that came from us from among the heathen that are about us. Now that which was prepared for for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep, also fowls were prepared for me, and once in ten days stores of all sorts of wine. Yet in all this required not I the bread of the governor, because of the bondage was heavy upon this people." Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for my people. So this is after he's chastised the rest of the leaders. He goes on to say that he got to be governor for 12 years. And if you remember at the beginning, Xerxes asked him, well, how long are you going to be gone? I don't know that he said he would be gone for 12 years when he, right. when he first went there, but I'm sure he was in correspondence with Artaxerxes this whole time. But he's made governor. Why was he made governor? Because he's been very wise with the people. He's been able to protect them. He's been able to help build up the city. He's been able to, he's very popular with the, the people because he's keeping the, the nobles in check. And he's, he's bringing everybody to God. And so he says, you know, and then at the very end he says, verse 14, I and my brethren have not eaten of the bread of the governor. And this literally shows it was the right of the governor to require basically a tax to, for them to eat because they're not, they're not farming, they're not, they're not running a business, they're running the, 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 the government, the, the, the territory. And so it was his right as governor to put out an excise tax, you know, say because he's got to feed all his people and support me. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, I haven't, I haven't done that. I don't know how he got his money beyond that. Uh, maybe, maybe he had some servants working and God blessed them. You know, who knows how, but he's saying, I haven't, I haven't taxed you for my, for my life. I haven't taxed you for my, 
you know, meetings. I'm not asking you for anything. I'm just serving. You know, and Paul has said the same thing in his letters to a number of churches. Hey, I'm not even asking you for support. You know, he was a tent maker one time and he was making tents. Another, another place he said, you know, I'm robbing from this other church who's paying me and I'm not even there. I'm here and they're paying me, you know, because I don't want to be a burden to you. And this is a true statement. You know, a good pastor doesn't want to be a burden to their church. And yet, the scriptures also says they're worthy of their hire. So it is, it's a, it's a very, especially in small churches, it's a very hard place to be at. The church usually wants to pay a good pastor more money if they can't afford it, and the pastor, you know, can't do everything he wants to because of it. And so this is a tension that's always there. And here, Nehemiah is saying, hey, I'm not even, I haven't bothered to even ask. You know, God is providing. It gets down to the God is providing. And we look at what they're feeding him every day. This is a, you know, this is quite a, quite a thing that he's not being taxing them. And it says, but the former government, governors that were before me were chargeable unto the people and have taken of them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. That would be probably per day. Yeah, you know, much like our current government, but uh, and their servants even ruled over you. Okay, so these guys were their servants thought that they were something special, even though they're the servant to the leaders. They thought they were special, and would go in and probably just say, "Hey, you know, the governor has, you know, need needs this food. We're taking it." And we've all seen movies where we've seen the king's soldiers going in and. And just taking what they want with no charge, no, 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 and you know, it's always a corrupt king that they're doing this with, and most of it went to them and not necessarily to the king. Um, <laughs> so and so he's saying, you know, I haven't done it. I haven't taken the forty shekels of silver each day. I haven't demanded the food every day. You know, we are taking care of ourselves. And he goes on to say. Yea, I have continued in the work of this wall. Neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither into the work. So he's saying, I haven't been lazy. I've been out there with you building the wall. And leaders who are actually out there doing things have a greater following than those who just try to demand people to work. And I've seen it over the years. You know, you got some boss who just wants to sit in the office and tell everybody what to do and never, never leaves the office. Now, now, on the flip side, there are times when the boss has to be in the office and not out on the, on the floor because there is work that they need to do in that office. Uh, there's usually not 40 to 60 hours worth of work in the office, but, but it depends on how big the company is and what you're in charge of because not, the top boss can't always be out on the floor. And you see this in some very large churches. The pastor will tell you, well, you need to be pretty much dying before you see the head pastor because of all the stuff they're doing. Now, whether that's a good statement or not, I don't know. I've never been in a church that big to, to know the demands on the top pastor. But I, I can imagine if you're holding, you know, five to six or seven or eight services a week uh, and, you're, and you're trying to give fresh information all that time, it's a pretty big demand just to get all of that. Uh, so I can understand them saying, I can't take time to be with everybody all the time. This is the disciples when, when people were complaining that the widows weren't being taken care of. They go, hey, we can't stop studying and teaching. Let's go find, find seven men who can do the ministry of the taking care of the tables and everything. And we'll let them do it. And we'll still, we'll preach and we'll teach. And it was a wisdom thing. Because you can't stretch yourself too thin. The moment you start stretching yourself too thin, you're going to burn out. Hey. Yeah? Yeah. And if you're burnt out, you're not going to be any good for anything. And so, and this is why I tell everybody, just because there's a need does not mean that you're the answer to that need. And I've always said, you know, whatever it is, if we don't have people who are willing to do it, then God probably doesn't want us doing it. But I've always, I've always told people, I go, you know, whatever it is, no matter how important we think it is as leadership or, or even in general church, if, if people aren't willing to step up and do it, then we're not going to do it. And that would include things like Sunday school or anything else. If there's nobody to teach then at that, for that time or period, then God is saying, 
we're not going to do it. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and rulers beside, besides those that came to us from among the heathen that were among us. So he's saying every day he was entertaining 150 Jewish leaders, which meant they're pretty lazy guys that they couldn't go to their own houses. But he's, the, the, the nobles and everything went to his place every day. And then he's, besides all the people, all the visiting nobles and stuff. So, you know, you figure he probably has 150 to 200 people every day that he is feeding at night or, or the main meal, whatever the main meal was. And uh, he said they ate one ox and six sheep plus birds. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big, uh, but for 150 people, that's not too, you know, uh, too hard to picture, you know. So your feast was a big, a big ox, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of sheep, and some various types of birds. Uh, so this was a feast, and he prepared every day. And I don't. And he says, you know, nor, and I did not use the bread of the governors even for all of this. You know, and these were official functions. These might have been his tax collectors and his, you know, people reporting to him at, at the day. And this party was you know, what they did, you know, after, either before or after the reports. And the reason he said he didn't get, take the governor's money is because the bondage was heavy on these people. And that's what they complained about at the very beginning. We don't, we don't have enough food. We don't have enough, you know, we're having, we're having to mortgage our, our, our property just to buy food. And if it's not for buying food, we're mortgaging to pay the taxes to the, to the, to the king. So, and so he is not adding to this hardship to them. And then it says, his quick request to the people, think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So he's, God, I'm putting myself in you. You're going to have to keep paying this because I cannot continue on this. Verse, chapter 6. And it came to pass when Sambalad and Tobiah and Gershom the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there were no breaches left, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sambalat and Gershom sent him to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of these villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief, and I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should I, the work cease while I leave and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. So here's his enemies. He's got his enemies outside. He's, he's working on taking care of the problem inside. And these enemies, Sambalat and Tobiah and Gershom, sent him a note saying, Hey, why don't you come down here and meet with us? Okay, come on out of the city and meet with us. Now, these guys don't like him. They, they, they hate him. So coming out of the city to meet with them would not have been a wise idea. Something would have happened to him. Probably not in the place where he was at, but on the way or on the way back. Uh, his life would have been, been hurt, you know. And the reason they went to him, because he had built the wall. There were no gaps. They hadn't set up the gates yet, but there were no gaps in the walls. And... The gates were easier to defend than having no walls. So the having the walls gave you just the, the multiple gates that we talked about in the past. So that they hadn't set up and you know, they're saying, you know, let us meet in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. And, but he knew that they thought to do mischief. He knew that they were not there to, they weren't looking to do good. They weren't there you know, looking to have good things happen to him. And it says, and I sent messengers saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it to come down to you? And this is what a leader will do. A leader will not get distracted by other issues when they're working on something. And because, again, that will divert your attention if you're starting to get distracted by this. Like you focus on the vision, you get going on that vision, and you say, this is what we're doing. Because if you try to do too much... You burn yourself out again. And he's saying, I'm not leaving this. We're, we got this big work. It's not done yet. I'm not ready to start doing something else. <laughs> and uh, so, and then they sent him to him four times. They kept, kept trying to get him to come down, you know. And this is that idea of, well, if I bug you enough, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do what I ask. Uh, our children learn this. So if I ask the same question enough times, you're going to get frustrated with me. And they're going to say yes. Uh, and, but he's going to say, I'm not 
doing. I'm not coming down. I'm not leaving. I'm not going to put my life in jeopardy, you know, to, to meet with you to, because of whatever things that you're wanting to do. Verse 5, Then sent Sambalat his servant unto me in, in like manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu says it, that you and the Jews think to rebel for which cause you built the wall and you may, that you may be their king according to these words. And you have also appointed prophets to preach unto you in Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Now come, therefore, and let us counsel together. All right, so they come up to him. They've been asking him four other times, and this time they come out with an open letter. And an open letter literally means something that everybody knows about. The first ones have just been between them and him. This time it's an open announcement, and they're, and they're speaking these words in, in, in public and, and trying to get these rumors started that are going on. And the rumor that they're starting is, it's been reported among the heathen, and Nashmu said it, and I don't, I don't know who Nashmu is, it's the only time I think that he's mentioned, that the Jews think to rebel for which cause they built the wall, that you may be their king according to these words. So in other words, they're saying, hey, it's being reported that you're, you're, you're going to rebel against the king and that you want to make yourself king. And that's why you built these walls is so that you can, and this goes all the way back to those first couple chapters where they use that accusation to the king that you know, they're, trying to build a, they're trying to build a kingdom so they can rebel. And this is standard in things that happen out there. The world attacks, the world lies. And this is why I've said over and over in, the, in Proverbs and, and Psalms says the same thing. Let God be your defense. Because when you start answering lies, you give validity to the lie. You know, and this is what always happens. As soon as you answer a lie, you give validity to it. And so you cannot do that. You have to be able to say, God, you're the defender. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest in you and let you be my defense. And these are lies that they're saying. You know, you're, planning to, you're planning to make a king. You're planning to rebel. You know, Nehemiah was a close friend of Artaxerxes in, in many ways because he had been his cupbearer. He'd been very intimate in, the, in what was going on and knowing what was going on. And it was with great sadness that Artaxerxes sent him away to take care of the Jerusalem problem at that time. So, and they're getting ready to make this lie to them, but they're also trying to plant seeds of doubt in the people. The people have been built, building this wall. They're, they're trying to stay in honor of Artaxerxes at this moment. And the people might be of two minds themselves. Some are just wanting to say, we're going to stay faithful to Artaxerxes. Others are saying, oh, wow, this is a great idea. We'll have our own country again. So they're trying to put a split in the middle of the people, trying to go, well, this is what's being reported. And some are going to go, yeah, that sounds like a wonderful idea. As others are going, I don't think he's planning that. I hope he's not planning that. So there's, they're putting this split in amongst the people who are listening. And this is the problem with listening to falsehood. It always puts a doubt in people's mind. And this is why Satan uses lies so often, is that it puts a seed of doubt. It puts that there might be something wrong into their, into their mind. And it's one of what I've said, people who listen to gossip, they hear something said about somebody and go, well, I don't believe it. But by the time they've heard it three or four times, it starts to grow a little bit in their mind and go, well, gee, if this many people are saying it, there might be something to it. And verse 7, and you have also appointed prophets to preach of you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come, therefore, and let us take counsel. And he says, you know, hey, you, 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 you've made your own prophets. You don't have prophets of God. You've got your own, you, you hired a bunch of prophets to say that you're king. And basically they're saying, you know, hey, you're, you're trying to build yourself up. You're trying to make it yourself look good. And then their last threat, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Okay? Now we're saying it in front of you. We're planting seed. We're trying to divide your people. And now, by the way, we're going to the king telling them that this is all true. Now, they've already done this. It's already happened in the beginning of this book, and, uh, and it's what happened in Ezra's time, too. Uh, but 
they're saying they're just trying to stir up trouble. Anytime God moves forward, the enemy will stir up trouble against what God's doing. Satan will not lose territory meekly. He won't ever sit down and say, oh, well, I lost that, I lost that spot. No, he will come back raging with, you know, with different forces. And I say the devil, I don't necessarily mean the devil. It could be any one of his various sundry lieutenants down lower because most of us, most of us aren't big enough in the kingdom to, to, to develop, to, to deserve Satan's direct attention. But he will, inc the more we irritate him, the more he will throw at us from his, from his angels. Now, the great news about that is no matter what he throws at us, he only has one third of the angels. There's two angels of God for every one of his. And he's not omnipresent, but he has a good, he has a good network of uh, spies and he doesn't know our thoughts. You know, he only knows what he hears and sees and that's all that they understand. But they also are enough of them that they're around. <laughs> and this is what we've said over and over. If we could see into the spiritual yes, world, if we could see into the spiritual world and see the battles that are going on around us all the time, we'd probably be terrified to begin with. Uh, but, but the good news is God's got two angels to every one of the demons. So there's, he's never going to be outflanked. He's never going to be unknown. And he, all the demons have to, have to ask permission before they can do anything. Like in Job. Just as in Job. So here's these accusations. And again... Nehemiah is having to, to listen to this, and now the people are listening to it. And that's the problem in this, and this is why it's there, is that the people, it's planting seeds. And again, just as we said, for some it's planting the seed of this is a great idea, we need to have our, we need to have our country back. Others are, well, I, I, don't, I didn't think he was that kind of leader, but you know, he is kind of acting like somebody who's a big shot. You know? And so there's this planting this on the side that are for him, planting that seed of, you know, maybe. And this is one of the reasons we have to be careful. What do we listen to from people? What do we hear? The Bible tells us we're not to know anyone after the flesh. And that means their past sins, their current sins. doesn't mean we're going to be naive and, and just let them hurt us and keep hurting us. But it's also going to be, I'm going to learn to forgive. I'm going to learn to give them the, the benefit of the doubt because the Bible tells us that we're a new creation and when somebody gets saved they're supposed to become a new creation and God grows them from that place and cleans their language up, cleans their actions up, cleans their thinking up, you know, and we get to the place where we walk more and more and more and more and more like Christ and if people are always looking at us and saying well gee I know what you really are, you know, you're that you're that thieving, lying, stealing person that I've always known. Right. And we don't give them the benefit that God's changing them. And all we're going to do is speak the evil over them. Right. They're going to give up. Right. Even if they deserved it, they're going to give up. Right. And this is why, and you see it with people who give up alcohol or drugs and their family and friends are just waiting for them to fall back because that's what they expect. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, they know that you were expecting them to fall down, so, and that there was no, that, and basic told you there's no hope, so it's not a real surprise when they fall. But when they're encouraged and built up and lifted up, then you see this new life developing in them. And you're not pounding on them saying, you're, you're a loser, you're, you're a nobody. And we give them words of encouragement. Not to lie, not to... Not to make up stories, but we're encouraging them. You are worth something. You are a child of God. God has got great power to help you. You know, thank you. I've watched you and you're growing so much. All these words are so important for people to say, I am worth something. Because the world is going to pounce on them and tear them down and knock them down and knock them down. And we as Christians have to be careful that we don't participate in that way of thinking because that's the flesh's way of thinking. The flesh always wants to exalt itself by making others look bad. It's a, it is what it does. 
The flesh will always do that because the flesh wants to look better than everybody else. We see it in the business world all the time. Uh, we see it in just day-to-day -day activities. I mean, it's, yes, it is a childish activity, but everything the flesh does is childish. So, but it is, I like to use that it is flesh because that is what it is. It's the flesh's way of doing things. And so, let's see here, I've got to get back to where, where I was at. Uh, verse 8. Oh, and the very end of verse 7, it says, Come now, therefore, let us counsel together. Okay, you've ignored us these other four times, but come on, Nehemiah, get down off the, out of that city and come talk with us. Come, come give validity. And if he'd stepped out of the city at this point, he would have given great validity to everything they said. Because everybody would have been looking at him. Oh, and now he's going to go answer these, try to answer these things. You know, mm -hmm. he'd have given a big validity to this. And uh, verse eight. And then I sent to, unto him, saying, "There is no such things done as you say, but but you faint uh, faintest them out of your own heart." In other words, you're making things up. <laughs> this is not going on. And. Basically, he's saying, okay, uh, you know it's not happening. I know it's not happening. You're, you're imagining things, and I'm just going to not answer you is what he's saying. Again, letting God defend. And it's amazing what happens when God defends. And we've said this over and over. When God defends us, great things happen. Things get, things get turned around. And the minute we try to get involved in our own defense... And I know it's true for me. Every time I try to defend myself, I'm going to make a mess out of it, period. I'm going to make it look like it was real, the attack was real. I'm going to say something that's going to make them angrier. It's just a lot easier just to say, God, you defend. And God makes great defense. He'll convict somebody that they're wrong and, make them, and get them to where they'll, they'll repent if that doesn't work, he'll start making their life miserable. And I've seen that happen over the years, that God has made people's lives miserable for the sins that they have done. And God will be victorious. He will honor his servants that are serving him. No matter what level they are, he'll honor his servants that serve him and are being defamed for no reason, being, being attacked for no reason. And also that he can be lifted up that he gets lifted up in the deal. Because usually when we defend ourselves, we're trying to protect our own pride, our own reputation, and we end up messing up. It's the same thing when somebody gets angry. I, I am fully convinced that you can never be angry at something, righteously angry about something that happens to you. Because it's your ego that's hurt. It's your name that you're thinking of hurting. And when you're angry about something that happened, and you might even be right, but you're, you know, for, for wanting to defend yourself, but you're going to do it wrong because it's the flesh. The only way you can have righteous anger is when you're angry about something that somebody else did. And then even then you've got to be careful that you don't step outside godly bounds in, 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 a, in, in that kind of anger. When Jesus, when Jesus threw the money changers out of the yeah. temple and, and chased them out, it wasn't that he was trying to hurt, uh, hurt them. It's like he's protecting his father's reputation. It said, get out of here. Um, verse 9. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, and it shall not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. So in other words, he says they were trying to get us shaken up. They were trying to make us so that we weren't going to work. And... This is what they were trying to do, divide the people, divide the people inside the town. And again, as I said, some of them are going to like this message of Jeremiah, you know, thinking that Nehemiah might want to be king. They, they've got, you know, yeah, it's time for us to have our own. Others are going to say, no, we need to, you know. So there's this idea that he's trying to split the people inside the city so that there will be dissension. And we see this oftentimes in churches where dissension comes from splits usually for something just as stupid as this. You know, well, I don't like this music that they're playing, and then this, they get this whole school of people that start agreeing with them. Well, if the pastor was really spiritual, he wouldn't allow this, going, this kind of music going on or, or wouldn't let this go on. And the next thing you know, your church is splitting up at the seams because of a stupid thing, the indissension, splitting the people. And this is what Tobiah and Sanballat's trying to do. They're trying to get into the people's ears and saying, let's get a split. 
it's going to split. They, they can't work if they're, if, they're, if they're battling one another. And so, but we see this so often when even good friends can be split because people say things and they listen. And it's so important that we don't listen to gossip, period. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant because anything that's said will color our thinking towards somebody. And it's none of our business. It's none of my business what they're doing outside. It's none of their business what they're doing with each other. It's, it's between them and God. Now, if it's something that's going to affect my family or my church, then it's something I deal with. You say colors or what? Colors our thinking. Yeah, shades our thinking. You know. But this person's saying this. Well, all of a sudden, you know, whether I believe it or not, it starts getting into my mind that they are saying these things or doing these things. And I all of a sudden get to this point of, well, then I see them and all I think about is all the bad that I know about them. And this is why Paul tells us we're to know no one after the flesh because I don't need my, color, my thinking colored when I see them. I don't go, well, this person's a drug addict. I gotta, I gotta you know, you know, no, I just wanna love this person and care for this person and see what's going on. Because they may or may not be what people have said they are. Uh, you know, I, this person is not trustworthy. Well, until they prove that they're not trustworthy, then I'm not, I'm going to treat them as if they're trustworthy. Now, will I hand them the keys to the, to the safe and all the money in the, in the church, you know, right off the bat? No, I'm going to make sure they're trustworthy before they get that kind of responsibility. But I'm also not going to expect them to be not trustworthy. This is the way the world thinks. The world has this mentality out there. Liars lie. If you're a liar, you believe everybody lies. If you're a thief, you believe everybody steals. If you, you know, and this is, it is a so, psychological, sociological pheno phenomenon. You know, if you believe, if you are something, you believe that everybody is that way. Okay? And it colors you. If you're a thief, you expect everybody to be a thief and you don't, you know, you're expecting everybody to try to, to angle you and, and, and get, get from you. And for us as Christians, when we get, we have to be very careful because sometimes we can get too naive mm -hmm. and say, well, everybody, everybody's good. Well, no, everybody is flesh and everybody is evil. The question is, I still want to treat them as if they're good. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be one who, like I said, we're not going to hand them over the keys to the building so they could clean it out, but we're going to treat them as if they're honorable until proven otherwise. And when they prove it, then we can give them whatever else needs to be done. All right, verse 10. Afterward, I came into the house of Shemiah, the son of Delariah, the son of Hetabiel, who was shut up. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple that they will come, for they will come to slay you in the night. Will they come to slay you? And he said, and I said, should such a man as I flee, who is there that being as I am, which would go into the temple to save his life, I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me for Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and not, and do so in sin that they might have a matter for an evil report against me. So this prophet quote-unquote, <laughs> comes to Nehemiah and says, uh, hey, why don't you just get into the temple? This will give you a second, second place to, to hide. Uh, you've got the walls, then you go into the temple, and we'll shut the doors <laughs> so that nobody can come in and so nobody can kill you. Now, this would be an admission to guilt, admission to fear, and also the fact that he doesn't belong in the temple. He's not a priest. He can be out in the court, but he's not to be in the temple. He's not to be in the holy place or the holy of holies. So this guy's really trying to do two things. Trying to, number one, cause him to be afraid and bring him into a place where he's not supposed to be. And now, because if, if he did that, then the people will go, well, why is he running? Why is he, you know, this, this attack came and now he's hiding. And this is, again, leaders cannot go into hiding when people are saying things against them because it just builds up the, uh, the attacks and the insults. They've got to keep doing what it is that God has told them. And this is what he said earlier. I've got a great work here. I've got to work on this work. I'm not going to be distracted. This is the vision God gave us. We're going to go forward in this vision and we're going to lift up God and we're going to do what God wants. And you see here that Nehemiah really understands that God's his protection. 
I mean, if he stays outside the temple and somebody's trying to kill him and it's God's will for him to die, he's going to die. If he goes in the temple and he's in, mm -hmm. he can die. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's God's will that he stays alive, then nothing is going to kill him no matter what he's doing out there because God says he's to stay alive. And this is what's important. When we're doing God's work, we're in the center of God's will. We don't have to worry about anything because if he takes us home, he takes us home. If he keeps us alive, then he, we're, we're doing the work that he wants to do. And this is the idea of going into the dangerous situation. And, and Christians have done this for years, yep. going into dangerous situations because God says, go do it. Yep. Uh, I love the story in The Cross and the Switchblade where, where David Wilkerson tells Nikki, Nikki says, I'm going to cut you up into 100 pieces. And he says, go ahead. And every piece of it is going to say that God loves you. Now, because he knew that he was where he was supposed to do and saying what he was supposed to do, say, and there's no fear. We are not to be fearful as Christians. We're to cast all our fear, all our fears on him, even the ones that may even be legitimate. We're to cast any fear on him because he loves us. He cares for us. And he's saying, take and put everything on him. And don't take it back. <laughs> don't take it back. And in verse 11, it says, Should a man as I flee, who is there that, being as I am, that would go into the temple to save his life, I will not go. I'm in God's presence. I don't need, I don't need to go hide. I don't need to, you know, I'm doing what God wants. Don't, you know, quit trying to. And then, then it goes that he perceived that it was not right. He, he saw through what was going on. And I love it when God gives that glimpse that somebody's playing you. You may not know why, you may not know how, and it's happened three or four times here where somebody has tried to get to do something and God just says, don't do it. And he tells me later on why, why mm -hmm. but, but he's like, nope, you're not going to do that. You know, and then later on I'll be saying, oh, this is what they were trying to do. You know, uh, this is what they wanted to do. And, and God will do that with his people. If we will just sit back and listen to the Spirit... We may not have all the details as to why something happened or why it, was, why it was important for it not to happen, but God will protect us when we just listen to him and say yes or no according to what he says. And sometimes it's, it's really amazing when you don't know why, but you know God's saying to do something. Yep. You know, and this happened to me when I first moved to Kingman. I, you know, God, there's no sense in moving to Kingman. There's no jobs. There's no nothing. God, I want to move, you know, to these places where my, my jobs are available. And God, I knew God wanted me in Kingman. And, and then, then to Chloride. <laughs> you know, because you know, when God first told me I was going to be up here, it was like, God, you've got to be insane. Come to this small church and be the, you know. You know and that was before Pastor Dave even was I thinking of leaving. This either. So, but... But sometimes you look, and, and but God has got great blessings for us if we just listen. And we look to do what it is that he wants. And verse 14, My God, think upon Tobiah and Sambelet according to their works, and upon the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that should have put me in fear. He's going, God, you go get them. God, you know, I, I'm not even going to tell you what to do with them, God, but, you know, you... you I, I want you to remember them, God. This is what they've been doing. They've been attacking you, not me. And this is one thing we do have to keep in mind. When people attack us for serving God, they're not really attacking us. They're attacking God in us. They're attacking God directly. And we just need to be able to sit back and say, God, uh, you take care of them. And I can tell you, it's not easy to be able to separate the two, the two attacks. It really isn't. You know, number one, you want to be sure that they're attacking the God in you and not you for being dumb. <laughs> you know, and then many times we're, we deserve what we get because we were just you know, being obnoxious. But, but mo a lot of times, it's, they're literally just attacking the God in us. If we're being righteous and we're ministering, they're attacking God in us. And, it's, and if we can get that separated in our mind and have our flesh crucified so that it's not going to rebel, then God can step forward and say, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of it because you're being attacked because of me. And we look at what happened, even with the disciples. Every one of the disciples except John died a very violent death. But God used their deaths to increase the gospel message. 
And for John, poor John, it wasn't from lack of trying that, that he didn't, that, that uh, he survived into old age. I mean, they tried to burn him. They tried to poison him. They sent him to an in criminally insane asylum, you know, hoping that he would be killed by the inmates. You know, uh, and yet nothing, nothing killed, you know, God wouldn't let him die. And so for some of us, we'll live a long time. For some of us, we will be, be giving our life for him. Rapture. And the rapture, rapture. Hopefully, will be soon. I think it's going to be very soon. Mm -hmm. All right, we've got just a couple minutes. Let's see if we can finish these last verses. Verse fifteen. So the wall was finished in the twenty-fifth day of the month of Elu, in the in the fifty-second day. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was, was wrought by God. And this really is what happens when God does a work. And Satan has tried to stop it, and the people have tried to stop it. And when it gets to its completion, whatever stage of that work is, the people are oftentimes disappointed that it didn't get broken down. And we've seen it over and over. We see it, you know, when, when churches start ministries in the inner city people say well why you know, why are you all here you know you're goody two shoes and you know and we see it when we try to help the help people out you know what you know, what's what's your angle what are you trying to get and then they see that all it is is trying to lift up god and there's two two answers they either turn to god because of it or they get just like this and really get down and out and we just it's hard to understand why they would do that but it is what happens you know is that they get depressed in their own you know we tried hard to stop this and we failed and but God is always doing works and Satan is always coming against those works and a lot of times things get worse seem to get worse before they get better and that's a lot of it to test those who are doing the work I got my miracle brother I'm a miracle my life is a miracle and Satan's going to be sorry you messed with me but a lot of this is, you know, Satan is trying to get the leaders totally depressed and quit. And God allows it to go to where our strength is going to fail. Because he does not want us to do anything for him that's done in our flesh and in our strength. Because at the end of that comes, if I can do it in my own strength, is look what I have done, God. And God says, no, look what I have done, not what you have done. And so it will always be when the test and trials come, it'll be hard enough to break us. And, we'll, and when, we're, when we break, we do one of two things. We either quit because we're broken, which a lot of people do, or we turn to God and say, God, I can't do this anymore. You need to get it accomplished. And God says, okay, good, here we go. You know, and everything is everything that we do, the scriptures tell us there's no temptation overtaken us, but such is common to man, but God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. That escape is through him. And the test will always bring us to our breaking point. Where I either where I either quit because I can't take it anymore, or I turn to the to the way out, which is him. And that is what he does, is it is a common everything is common, there's nothing new. And Satan loves to try to tell us, you're the only one that's going through this. You're all alone. No, this is common. It's, everybody goes through it. Everybody goes, has it. And every test that we go through is designed to take us to our breaking point and make us make a decision. Every trial will do that to us. We either turn to God for, or we break. And all of our trials... And this is why the more we walk with God, the harder the trials get because we have grown with him and we should be able to handle more issues because we've been successful in watching God work. And the stronger we get, the more mature we get, the harder the test has to get to get us to that breaking point. And I know in one sense this is great news for those of us who are just looking to serve God, but it's also kind of scary news. You know, and... This is one of the things that, that goes into the old statement, you, you, know, you can't judge somebody until you've walked the mile in their shoes. You, know, you don't know what it took to break some of these people that have been broken. You look at somebody like a, a swaggered or, or who falls. Who knows how many times he didn't fall and how much attack he had when he did fall. We've got to be very careful on, should it have happened as a leader? No, it should not have happened, but 
where would I have fallen? Would I have fallen years before he did because of the the attacks and the questions and, and, and everything? Possibly, I don't know, and I don't want to know. I have enough trouble with my own life than trying to judge other people. And this is why, as Christians, when somebody falls, we need to wrap our arms around them and say, come on, God still loves you. He cares enough to bring you back. Because we all will fail. We all have problems. And we need to be loved. We need to be lifted up. And say, you're still loved by God. Even though you did whatever it is you did. <laughs> and it may be pretty small for some people. It could be really big for other people. But it's still just as devastating when you fail. And God says, lift them up. Love them. Because he does. He is standing beside us with his arms out underneath us so that when we do fall, we fall into the arms of God. And he just lifts us back up. He's like the therapist standing right there when you're trying to relearn to walk. And you stumble and they're right there. They don't always catch you, but that, their job is to catch you if you stumble. And they do a good job for the most part. They're like, and that's what God is. He's standing right there. Okay, you're getting ready to fall. Oh, I caught you. Nope, you're not falling. You know, you're not falling far because I'm not going to let you. You're not going to put you down at the bottom of the barrel again and let you wallow there for years while you're trying to get out of it. Now, we can try to choose to do that, but he's there saying, come on up. I'm right here. I just want to get you back up, and he wants to replace us back where we fell from. God is so precious that he doesn't say, okay, you, you, you messed around for three years wallowing in the dirt, so we're going to put you down at the very bottom of the ladder again. He goes, no, because it was, it was all grace to begin with. He puts us back where we fell from because it's grace. It's grace. I didn't deserve where I was in the first place, so he says, here, go back there. God's grace, not of works, because my works won't stand before him. Verse 17, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and, to, and letters of Tobiah came unto them. For there were many Jude, in Judah that swore unto him, because he was the son-in-law of Serechaniah, the son of Ahab, the son of Jehana, had, had taken the daughter of Mishulah, the son of Berukai, and they reported his good deeds before me and uttered my words unto him. And Tobiah sent letters to put me into fear. So in other words, he's saying these people were giving all kinds of bad reports to Tobiah about Nehemiah and trying to make Nehemiah think that Tobiah is a pretty good guy by talking about good things that he had done. And so this happens all the time, the little whispering campaigns that go on. And this is why... We need to be careful what we hear. And it is so easy to get wrapped up in listening to the evil reports, listening to, because number one, the flesh feeds on it. I'm better than this person. Look, at they're, they're so bad. I'm better. And, I, and the flesh starts puffing up. And we want to be so careful because all of this is there. And it is such an attack that can be made that is out there and more people have been hurt by things that are said than actually that have been done to them. Because we, our flesh doesn't like to be put down, and it takes very much a spirit of God to be able to take and, and stand up when, and be humble and just say, okay, God, if that's what they want to say, I know it's not true, you know it's not true, we're going to deal with it. And again, coming back to God is our defender. If we let God defend us, the truth will always come out, eventually. Now, we may not think so at the time when everybody's talking against us and putting us down and, the and these whispering, show. you know, and, and the, the people are threatening us because of what they're hearing. But the truth will always come out. And the same thing when we're sinning and we're thinking we're hiding our sin. The sin will always come out. And God says... What you think you've done in private will be shouted on the rooftops. And the key to this is the more authority and position you have with God, the more people that have to hear about your sin. It's one thing just to be a nobody and then three or four people hear about your sin. But a pastor or a teacher or somebody who's high, high profile, 
when they sin and they think they're hiding it and not confessing it, God will shout that out to a lot of people because he wants to make sure that people know, you know, don't look at the person, look at me in that person. And this is why it's important that we always keep in mind what I want people to see is God in me. Right. I don't want them to see my flesh because my flesh stinks. You know, I, I am just like everybody else as a pastor. I have just as much flesh and just as much desire to sin as anybody else. Now, after 44 years, I've learned to put a lot of it under the blood and a lot of it crucified, but it's still there. There's still sin in my life. And I don't want anybody to ever think that I don't, that I have got everything all put together. Because that would be a lie. No worries, mate. No. <laughs> but because we all have issues, we all have problems. All of us do. And God uses those to keep us humble, saying, you know, see, you're still, you still need me in all that you do. And we need to keep that in mind. I need God for everything. I need God to keep my temper down. I need God to keep me from wanting to defend myself. I need God to keep me in the Word. Now, it is so easy to get out of studying God's Word, out of reading His Word. And I've told everybody, if I don't do it first thing in the morning, I won't be doing it, and I'm, you know, I, I won't. I'll just get busy doing life. And I'm no different than anybody else out there. As I encourage people to read, and there are days when I just get up late or whatever, or I get shook out of my sleep and have to do something and and I'll get to the end of the day and realize oh I haven't read today I have not done my reading today and get in then I have to go well I'm tired trying to do my reading and but it is important it is so easy to get out of spiritual habits reading the word praying coming into services very easy to get out of the habit of all of that because the flesh doesn't want it the flesh doesn't want all that. And so it says, just give it up. You know, you can't do it anyway. And it's right. Well, you can't really. We can only discipline ourselves to a certain degree. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, help each one of us to stand before you and, and, and serve you. Help us learn to let you be our defender. Let us Help us to keep you in all that we do in your son's precious. Amen.